You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. Having had the chance to sing earlier together, as is often the practice of the body of Christ, we gather together. One of the greatest joys of the church gathered together is singing. If you think about it, compare, if you would, other gatherings at other times and ask yourself, where do you sing like that? And not just the very exercise of singing, but singing those kind of songs. So what makes the body of Christ so unique is the gift of song. Even how Colossians speaks about this, we understand this in Colossians chapter 3 is how Paul speaks about we sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to one another, giving praise to God. Well, singing has been a joy for many people. We have people who lead us in songs, people like uh, Kayleen, people like Chris and others who are very gifted at music. Others of us are not as gifted at music. We do better down there than up here. It might surprise some of you to learn this, but I actually used to sing in the choir. No one is more surprised at this revelation than my own wife, who has stood by me countless amounts of times when I sing. My singing can be more compared to shouting. Enthusiastically, excitedly for the songs in which we're singing, I love to sing, but she would often challenge whether or not I'm singing on key. But when I was in school, in high school specifically, I was involved in athletics. That's what I did. I played soccer year-round. I swam year-round. I also did track and field during track and field season. I was involved in all of my spare time, involved in some type of athletic endeavor. But I had a friend of mine who said to me in high school, listen, Eric, The last class of the day, if we do this, is choir. It's an easy A. Secondly, if you go to this class and you're in choir and you make the cut, one of the things we get to do every year is we get to travel to Florida. I lived in South Carolina at the time. And we could do an annual tour to Florida. And thirdly, there's a lot more girls than there are guys in the choir, which means you have a better chance of finding a date. I was sold. I said yes, though, before I really considered what this meant for me. This meant I had to audition. This is where you're going to be exposed. Except I was glad to find out the audition was a group audition, and I did not have to sing a solo, of which I would otherwise have clearly been exposed. But in the group audition, I stood with some people, and I just simply found the range of the person next to me and kind of tagged along. And somehow, some way, I made the cut. Now, truth in advertising, this was a Christian school. And sometimes I think Christian schools are just kind of operate off the the thesis, bless his heart, and let me in. Regardless of how it was that I made the cut, nevertheless, I made the cut, and I was excited. Now, you can imagine in that type of theatrical performance, that type of singing or environment, when you get into these audition moments, these are high-stress moments. These are difficult times in which you're wondering, 
Some of you perhaps have a similar type of memory yourself of when you go out to sing and to audition for something, or maybe you've been involved in theater and you've had to memorize all of your lines or type of acting, and you're thinking, man, I hope I can do this. I lived with my wife in California for 10 years, specifically in Los Angeles. Los Angeles is known for all of its acting, kind of theater-related endeavor. And one of my friends uh, went for an audition for uh, a commercial. And uh, he was introduced to the people who welcomed him into the room. And uh, after they quickly made some introductions, they said they had to attend to something else. And they left him there and said, just spend the time however you want. Uh, we'll be back in a little bit. And they left him in this room that had a table full of odd objects on the table. What he did not know was that they were on the other side of a window looking in to see what he would do with that room, with those objects, while he was waiting. He just sort of being bored and just began to like do different things with the objects and stack them and try different things with them. So much so when they came back in, they just told him when they walked in and said, you've got the part. He had not done a single thing by way of interacting with them, but simply how he had auditioned was what he did with passing his time. Next thing you know, he landed a national TV commercial, which is a pretty sweet deal. But this type of environment can be a high-stress environment. You want to make sure you perform well. Performing according to your lines and your expectations, you want to make sure you proclaim excellently as to what's being expected of you, that you would be asked to come back and do it again. Well, tonight, we're introduced to some individuals that have a responsibility to proclaim. They are a part of a choir that is nothing less than angelic. But what they're about to do tonight is what we're about to see later this evening, we are invited to do as well. But there's no auditions, there's no tryouts, there's nobody not making the cut. It's simply a matter of desire if this is indeed your desire. As we're going to see in the text tonight in Luke chapter 2, it was certainly their desire to do so. If you would, turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. We've been in our previous weeks together in the book of Matthew, but we're taking a break this evening to be in the Gospel of Luke, specifically to look at the scene of the birth of Jesus Christ. Now, for tonight's purposes, we're not looking at the entire scene and all the things leading up to it and following from it. We're just simply looking at one particular scene within the larger scene of the birth of Jesus. To give you kind of a feel for what's been taking place already in the life of Christ, the angel Gabriel has appeared and it has appeared to not only pronounce the arrival of John the Baptist, but also of Jesus. And you can see this prophecy that would come, as you see this in Mary's description of this in Luke chapter 1, and then Zechariah's prophecy also in Luke chapter 1. And then you have in Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, the birth of Jesus Christ. It says specifically in verse 7, she, referring to Mary, gave birth to her firstborn son, that being Jesus, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there's no place for them in the inn. And that takes us to our text tonight. Look with me at verse 8 as we see, kind of lead up to where we're going to be in verses 10 through 14. In the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. The angel said to them, Fear not, 
For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Some of you have maybe heard of the song or maybe even sung the song, The Twelve Days of Christmas. And as proof that I used to be in the choir that you right now are doubting, I'm going to sing to you the 12 days of Christmas. I'm actually not. That would horrify my wife. It's interesting to note, though, a little curiously less known fact about the 12 days of Christmas. It's reported in history that the 12 days of Christmas was written to actually teach children in a creative fashion truths about Christianity, specifically the Bible. You're thinking, really? Well, may I share a few points with you? On the first day of Christmas, my true love gave to me a partridge and a pear tree. I'm not tracking it. The partridge and a pear tree represents Jesus, the Son of God, whose birthday we celebrate on the first day of Christmas. Christ is symbolically represented as a mother partridge, the only bird that will die to protect its young. On the second day of Christmas, my true love gave to me two turtle doves. These twin birds represent the Old and New Testaments. So in this gift, the singer finds the complete story of the Judeo-Christian faith and God's plan for the world. The doves are the roadmap that's available to everyone. I could go on and on for all 12 days, but a few more. On the ninth day of Christmas, my true love gave to me nine ladies dancing. You're like, okay, there's no way. There's just no way. Well, wait for it. It's reported that the nine dancers were really the gifts known as the fruit of the Spirit from Galatians. The fruits are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Hmm. Well, I'm not here to preach the 12 days of Christmas, but from Luke chapter 2, verses 10 to 14, I am here to give you the five truths of Christmas. The five truths of Christmas from the text that we've just read together. Truth number one that we've just saw in the beginning of verse 10 is that the gospel is proclaimed. The gospel is proclaimed. It says, And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. Now, I want you just to kind of feel the sense of the scene here and what happens in the end of verse 9 into verse 10. So there are these shepherds minding their own business, doing their job, and here comes an angel. Now, we don't know who the angel is. It's presumably by guess, maybe Gabriel himself, but an angel appears. Now, when an angel appears, it's usually not a good sign. Usually in the Old Testament, it can be seen oftentimes, not every time, but oftentimes as a sign of judgment. But I think it's worth noting here that when the angel appears, their response 
causes them to basically freak out. They're panicking. They are very, very worried. Now, I think this is worth noting here because oftentimes, or I should say at times, even today, you'll hear people describe that God appeared to them. An angel appeared to them, God appeared to them. And it's amazing to me how casual they are about this. As if to say, someone just walked in the room, they hadn't expected to say, like, oh, look who it is, it's God. What brings you here? And they go on to tell some revelation that God apparently gave them because of how he appeared to them. But you notice if you see here in the text, when something that's divine appears, something that's angelic in its creation has appeared to them, it causes great fear. They're overwhelmed with fear. They're greatly concerned. In fact, that's the very first thing that the angel has to do is he has to calm them down. It says in verse 10, the first thing he says is, fear not. Fear not. Which is why he then flips the script on us. He says, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. This truth, number one, about the gospel being proclaimed is this declaration of good news. In fact, the very term here being used is the term gospel. I bring you the gospel of great joy. I bring you good news of great joy. The term is not insignificant here. This term, good news, was used to describe even the birth of the emperor Augustus. This event in history was described at the time as good news and an arrival of a savior, even the term would be used. This is why Luke's description is significant. Jesus is lying in an animal trough, and yet heaven is present in this moment. I mean, just again, go back to, if I can give you the description again, the significance of what's being said here. Verse 7, she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger. Friends, when we think about God's gift to mankind, it was sort of trying to find the Savior, like in a similar way, trying to find Waldo. Where do we not look? We typically don't go to the manger. We'll look in the palace. We'll look on the mountaintop. We'll look in a place that's deserving of great honor and recognition, but to look in a manger? Wrapped in swollen clothes where, where you're sort of accompanied, your sort of wingmen, if you will, are animals? Smelling animals? No festive celebration? Yet the angel is saying here, this arrival of this person is good news of great joy. This term here is a sort of compounding reality, like it keeps getting better upon better upon better. It's this compounding reality of the greatness of God in the birth of the Son of God who became like one of us so that he might live in place of us. For those of you who are not clear about the gospel message, you need to be very clear about this this evening. This is not just a 2,000-year-old story that sits on a time capsule for some time gone past. This is a present opportunity now to see the same good news and the same opportunity for great joy. Truth number two that we see here in the five truths of Christmas is that everyone is invited. Everyone is invited. That's exactly what it says here in verse 10. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For all the people. 
I mean, first of all, I don't want you to miss the first announcement here of the Messiah's birth. I mean, like the first people you go to, the first people the angels show up at was not the scribes, not the religious elite, not the priests. They do not go to Jerusalem. They do not go to the temple. They go to shepherds. Shepherds who by their very nature, by their very job description are unclean. And because of their job being taken away so often from the temple, they couldn't get clean very often themselves. And by clean, I don't mean in the sense of like clean versus dirty. I mean like ceremonial clean to be able to be presented before God. The shepherds were outcasts. And yet here is God not calling the rich and the mighty. Here is God calling the poor and the lowly the people that otherwise would see themselves as being outcasts and unable. The best they can do is help facilitate somebody else's worship with animals, but not their own. Yeah, that's exactly where God goes. Friend, if you ever felt like where you're at in society, what you've done or not done is not going to turn not only the heads of people around you, but not turn the head of God himself, you would be completely wrong. God specializes in pursuing and proclaiming the good news of his son to people who think they otherwise do not deserve it. Who otherwise, other people think you do not deserve it. God says you do. God is glad to pursue you with this proclamation. Additionally, this idea that salvation will be for all people was not just about the class of people, the shepherds versus the priests, but also the ethnicity of people, something which we're being very familiar with in the book of Matthew as we see the salvation that Jesus continued to proclaim throughout his ministry was not simply one to Jewish people. It was not some ethnocentric reality by only those who were Jewish could understand who the Messiah was, who could understand who the Savior was. Instead, they would find, no matter where they came from, no matter what ethnicity they were a part of, they could find peace with God through faith in God's Son. Salvation is not exclusive to the Jewish people. It's a message that has offended many Jewish people, but nevertheless, most of you sitting here tonight are not Jewish. You are an illustration of this good news for all people. Truth number three is that the Savior has arrived. Look at verse 11. Look at what it says in verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The titles used here are significant. And even the place is significant. The Savior has arrived, this geographic marker, this city of David known as Bethlehem. This is a fulfillment of prophecy, the the radical reality that what God had promised to come to pass would come to pass, and it did. It did. For every promise God has ever made, he will always keep. And that's exactly what he's doing here in the text as he's showing this through the mouth of this angel, through the proclamation of this messenger, that those who do not otherwise see unto you is born this day in the city of David. And then it has these three titles here. These titles are significant. They're significant for a number of reasons. One, there is no other place in the New Testament where all three of these titles are used together at the same time. 
Savior, Christ, and Lord. The reader is prepared here for the use of Savior in Christ by this previous reference in Luke, as we've seen, but the title Lord here applied to Jesus for the first time as a comprehensive title. This goes all the way back to the Old Testament, the significance of what's being said here. The idea of Savior would have reflected this call of Jesus to deliver his people, rich in meaning. Now, for the Jewish mind, the significance of Savior would have been significant because of what they're wanting. They wanted salvation. But the term in the Greek mind, the Greek culture had been influencing that time at the place, the word Savior would be used commonly. A Savior could be anybody that has sort of helped your life. You refer to this as, a, as maybe a doctor could be a Savior. A ruler could be a Savior. A philosopher could be a Savior. But for the Jewish reader here, a Savior would be someone's of significant declaration because why? They needed salvation, and yet God sends not what they would expect. This term Savior referring to the people in the Old Testament describes a deliverer from enemies such as a judge. What's significant, though, is this idea of these terms being brought together in verse 11. You can see it there, a Savior, Christ, the Lord. This idea of Christ being this anointed one, this promised Messiah. Friends, what we can see here in the text is worth just sort of noting by personal application today for anybody here who professes to be a Christian. It's worth noting that God does not make a distinction or otherwise we at times try to make a distinction. Here's what I mean. There are many people today who want Jesus to be their Savior, but they do not want Him to be their Lord. They want their autonomy. They want to be respected in individuality. So what they're looking for is sort of a get-out-of-jail card. They're looking for someone that can kind of take care of their problem at the end of their life while they continue to live their majority of their life however they so please. There might be some here, here tonight who believe that. Perhaps sometime in the past, you had a conversation with somebody. Could have been a Sunday school teacher. Could have been a parent. Could have been a pastor like myself. And at some point, you came to understand, wow, there is a God. Wow, I've committed some acts of rebellion against that God. Wow, there's going to be consequences. And you are somehow led to believe I trust wrongly in that the person did not mean you to think this way, but you nevertheless kind of reinterpret this way, that all you needed to do was to, well, honestly, say a little magic prayer. You know, just kind of repeat after me. A little saying of this, it kind of makes it all go away. And so at some time in the past, you can imagine a time, you can even think of a time, you may even wrote down the date out of a time when you actually prayed a prayer. And you declare to that prayer, Jesus, you are my Savior. But subsequent to that time, you've largely lived as if you are your Savior. Certainly, Jesus is not your Lord because the desire has been of your heart to do what you so desire. To live as you so please. Friends, that's a false dichotomy that the Word of God never gives to any professing Christian. To profess to have Christ as your Savior is to declare and to determine to have Him as your Lord. 
Now, to be very fair and to be very clear, this does not mean we as Christians live perfectly without sin, even at times without regret or shame or guilt. But, but we understand the reality is when we are aware of such things, we repent of them and we are restored to relationship with the Lord. But to have somebody who is knowingly, repeatedly living in sin and not wanting in any way to, re, to remove that sin from their life does question, doesn't determine, doesn't, doesn't finalize, but does understandably bring the question, is Jesus really their Savior? What does this mean? This means we're sober-minded by the reality that as the angel is declaring of a salvation and one to find, that that salvation would include not only salvation from sins, but also salvation from a desire to continue to live in that sin. As you think about this truth that the Savior has arrived in verse 11, what makes this particular scene interesting is the audience. Again, we're brought back to who it is that's being spoken to here, the lowly shepherds, these flocks that the shepherds were watching, these animals, these sheep that they're tending to. Interestingly, just as a curious historical fact here, were not the ones outside of town in the barren ground, but the ones that were closer to town on the road to Jerusalem. In fact, a passage in the Mishnah, which is the early Jewish writing, leads to the conclusion that the flocks were pastured there, were destined for the sacrifices at the temple in Jerusalem. Now just think about how mind-blowing that is. These shepherds are watching over lambs who are going to be offered in obedience to the word of God for people's sin, while the angel is declaring to them, about the Lamb of God who will take away all the sins of the world. I mean, he's basically saying to them, hey, you're doing your job, well done. I want to tell you where the ultimate Lamb is. He takes us to truth number four. Praise is given. The gospel is proclaimed. Everyone is invited. The Savior has arrived. And truth number four, praise is given. Jumping down to verse 14, we go from the soloist to now the full choir. You can see it in verse 13. Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God. Basically what happens here, you go from one angel declaring to now a countless amount declaring this great moment. And look what's being said here, beginning of verse 14. Glory to God in the highest. Glory to God in the highest. As Warren Wiersbe says, how amazed the angels must have been when they saw the Creator born as a creature, the Word coming as a speechless baby. And the angels now collectively declaring the greatness of God in the most unlikeliest of circumstances. How radical would this have been? How overwhelmingly would this, just to take in and to grasp, I don't know what should be more overwhelming, what it is that's being said, or who it is that's being said, who's saying it? Perhaps you've had a chance to be at such theatrical performances of something like a, a major uh, Broadway production or maybe just a major choir uh, cantata or something like that. It can be pretty amazing if it's really you know, a, a significant group of musicians. 
remember one time going to a university uh, production, uh, watching um, uh, a song declaring the greatness of God and salvation, and it was just amazing, just the, the, the triumphant choir they were singing. I can pretty much just guarantee you this, no choir was as good as this choir. And here they are declaring it. Here are the angels declaring it. Glory to God in the highest. Significance of God being declared in the highest and yet seemingly born in the lowliest of places. I'm reminded of what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, where Paul says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Listen to what Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. He says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. That significance of being manifested in the flesh. God became like us so that he might fulfill the law on behalf of us, so that all those who would believe in him for the forgiveness of their sins, having been crucified on the cross, buried and resurrected three days later, that, that we would be forgiven for having believed in him and him alone for the forgiveness of our sins. It takes us to truth number five. In the five truths of Christmas, truth number five, peace is offered. Peace is offered. Look at verse 14 again. And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. The phrase here means those upon whom God's will or his favor rests. And it's an expression of the thought of God's free choice of those whom he wills to favor and save. We see this back in chapter 1, verse 78. Look at verse 78 and 79 of chapter 1. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. For the time and centuries, now God, through His Son, has declared salvation to all who would believe. This good news, as it says here, peace on earth among those whom He is well pleased. It's noteworthy that God did not send a soldier. He did not send a judge. He did not send a reformer. He sent a Savior to meet man's greatest need. I prayed it earlier this evening. I want to just say it again to you now in person. God is aware of every condition by which you find yourself in and every season you find yourself in it. He is not deaf to your prayers. He is not merciless to your needs. But contrary to what we otherwise believe in any given moment, our greatest problem is not our relational loneliness, not our issues of financial insecurity, not even our physical condition and the potential risk of death because of it. 
Our greatest concern should be, as it is to be, is our issue of having our sins atoned for, our sins paid for, peace with God to be offered. It's a message of peace that God gives to the world. The famous Pax Romana, which means Roman peace, had been in effect at that time in history since 27 B.C., but the absence of war doesn't guarantee the presence of peace. You often hear today people talk about the desire for world peace. Friends, the absence of military conflict should not equal our thinking the presence of peace, not true, deep peace that we really understand. The Stoic philosopher Epictetus said, when the emperor may give peace from war on land and sea, he is unable to give peace from passion, grief, and envy. He cannot give peace of heart for which man yearns more than even for outward peace. Do you see the problem there? The problem is not the war that happens without, outside of us. The problem is what happens with inside of us. How can that peace be found? The Jewish word shalom, which means peace, was much more than a truce in the battles of life. It meant well-being, health and prosperity, security and soundness and completeness. It had much more to do with your character than it was your circumstances. And because sin has so tainted the hard drive of every human heart, there can be no peace apart from Christ and faith in Him. Think about these five truths of Christmas. The gospel is proclaimed. Everyone is invited. The Savior has arrived. Praise is given and peace is offered. The term angel means messenger. Messenger. You can see early in the chapters of the gospel accounts how God sent messengers known as angels to be his representatives of this good news, to proclaim, to preach, as the word would be used, to proclaim this good news. The question is, why is God not sending more angels today to tell people good news? He did it then. Why is he not doing it today? Because, friends, today God intends to send us, that we would be the people who would bring the world news of good news of great joy, of peace to all people who would believe. I mean, think of what Acts chapter 8, verse 5 says, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Acts chapter 17, verse 3, Paul's preaching says, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Again, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 5, Paul says, what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. 1 John chapter 1, verse 3, John said, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Friends, when we say, Merry Christmas. May it be more than just a seasonal greeting. May we feel within us a desire to want to say more, 
to explain why it's so merry, to explain why it's so significant. Talk about more than family traditions or time away from work or particular things that you enjoy, but to speak of Christ, to speak of a message of forgiveness, a message of grace, a message of hope. What will it take you to open up your mouth and to say to those who have not heard and believed there is hope for peace? It's found in Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, who is the Savior and the Lord. Christmas can be a hard time for some people, wrongly and rightly. There are the wrong reasons why Christmas is a hard time. Let me think about children who are upset at Christmas because they don't get the gift that they wanted. Pouting, if you will. Traditions are changed. Sometimes uh, parents can be upset when their kids get married and their kids are not home for Christmas because it turns out that they're a part of another family now. They have to trade, they have to change, they have to, you know, kind of uh, have their children be shared by other families. I'm not talking about that kind of thing of Christmas. Sometimes Christmas can be hard because it's the first time of having Christmas since you lost a job this past year. Last year's Christmas was filled with gift giving. This year, not so much because you don't have the money to give those gifts. You feel embarrassed by it. You wish you could do something more, but you don't have the finances for it. For others, this is the first Christmas since the death of a spouse or the death of a parent. And those traditions that are strong in your mind are now very painful and hurtful. For others, it's perhaps the first time as a single parent because your children have all gone out and moved away. It's the first Christmas alone. I want to say with compassion that this can still be a Christmas of great joy. Not because of the circumstances by which you and I live in, good or bad, easy or difficult, but because of the news that God gives to shepherds, and the people sitting here tonight in this church in Miami. Look at what it says there. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Tonight is our invitation to join that choir and tell that story. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May God draw you nearer to Him through His Word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.